1: Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear J.T. Nagel.
1: So the next year, I go to college, and I decide that
3: this is it. You know, time to be an adult. Adults don't masturbate.
2: (laughs) That and more, but before that, you know, I will run through all of our upcoming live dates at the end of the show, but I did want to announce that we have just confirmed our Boston show. On May 15th, the theme is respect, and the pitch deadline for that is April 17th. Philly. We have just confirmed. We will be there on June 17th. The theme is disgusted and the pitch deadline is May 20th. You can always pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Now, don't forget our incredible deal that we have with adamandeve.com. 10 free gifts that includes free shipping on your whole order. When you choose just one item, just go to adamandeve.com, select an item. I just got the rude boy prostate massager. Wow. Does that get some great reactions (laughs) out of the fellas? So just enter the offer code RISK at the checkout. You get 10 free gifts. That's adamandeve.com, R-I-S-K at the checkout. Holy cow, you got to do it. And one more thing. If you hate when I sing stamps.com ads at the beginnings of shows, boy, this week you are up shit crazy.
0: Oh, mailing
2: and shipping are very important, but going to the post office sure as shit ain't. That's why I love a certain little something called stamps.com. You can buy and print your U.S. postage using your computer and your printer, too. We use stamps. To come right here at risk and tell tales about butts and poo. That's right, and right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter
4: RISK!
2: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is the Karminsky Experience behind me now, and this is live from Chicago 4. We had a phenomenal show in Chicago yet again a few weeks ago, right before I went off to Japan to sleep with most of the people there. We love Chicago. We love these live shows, you know... Here's the deal, though. There is a problem. After every live show that we do out of town, I do a meet and greet, right? I take pictures with people, give them hugs, chat about their experience of what the show has meant in their lives. But there is often a cute dude, right? There's often a cute dude who will come up and, you know, I I I won't know if he's gay or not. And so I'll be too shy to give him my number or to ask for his. We just did a show just a couple nights ago in Washington, D.C. There was a cute dude. His name was Fern from uh, Virginia. And I didn't I was too shy. So I think here's what we should do. If you're a cute dude and you come up to me after a show, say something that kind of gives me a hint as to your orientation, you know, something like, wow, do, do I not think of vaginas often? Or, hey, is your favorite Streisand album also Color Me Barbara? Or, well, I'll tell you, Kev, aren't Dudes, butts, neat If you just toss in one of those zingers I'll totally get it and I'll give you my number And in the meantime, Fern, Fern from Virginia Uh, You guys should know I'm always on Twitter at the Kevin Allison Or on email at, you know, Kevin at wrist-show.com You know the drill, the Ferns of the world out there tell you what, after I met that one, I wanted to be between two ferns. But we're gonna start this uninterrupted live Chicago set with a young man who had never told a story live on stage before, even though he's an actor and improviser in town. Now, George Carlin once used the old expression boxing the Jesuit to mean masturbation. And so I thought since this very Catholic story is about both Beating the bishop and bowing to him. Here's J.T. Nagel now for the story we call Boxing the Jesuit.
3: For giving up House of Cards for a night to come out here. <laughs> My name is JT Nagel. I'm originally from a small town called Osawatomie, Kansas. And if you're thinking that sounds like a place where grown adults talk about why they believe interracial marriage is wrong, you're correct.
4: <laughs>
3: though the town isn't particularly religious either, so it's just this town full of hate, minus any excuse for it. Um, though, though the town isn't religious, my family is. Uh, see, I, I was raised super Catholic. Um, my grandmother ran the RCIA program at her church, converting adults to Catholicism. Uh, I was an altar server until I was 16. I went to Catholic school until high school. I really liked being Catholic because, like my, my family, they they wouldn't just say like, "Oh, you can't do this because the Bible says so." You know, they would try to give me an intellectual reason for it. An historical reason. And so, you know, going to church became not only this spiritual endeavor, but also this intellectual one. I, I could go to church and I felt calm and I felt centered. And I felt like that no matter what was going on in the world, everything was going to be okay. Uh, so when I turned 17, I decided to go to the University of Kansas. Uh, this was the first time I was going to be on my own, And now being on my own was a problem because as long as I can remember every second I've been alone, I've spent masturbating. (laughs)
4: Uh,
3: I first discovered masturbation when I was like eight and I remember just thinking, oh my God, this feels great. Um, I'm going to do this forever. (laughs) And that was the plan until I was 10. Uh, And we start this program called Project Genesis in school, which was basically Catholic sex ed. Through Project Genesis, one of the lessons is uh, mortal sin. And my teacher, Mrs. Boyer, told us that mortal sin is the act of deliberately turning your back on God. And self-abuse, which is the Catholic term for masturbation, uh, is a mortal sin. And all mortal sin leads directly to hell. And it just hit me. I was like, oh, no, Like that's me. Like, I'm going to hell. And so I try, like, really hard to stop. I, I really do, when I'm 16, I give it up for Lent. And that lasts, like, that lasts, like, seven days. Um, until I go over to my friend Jen's house after school one day, and we end up making out on our bed. And while we're making out, I, I come in my jeans. And just, and so then I immediately jump up and I run to the bathroom and I get a plan and I flush the toilet even though I'd been in there for two seconds and then I turn the faucets on full blast and I splash water all over my crotch and then I come back in and like I'm like oh I was washing my hands and water fell on my pants Uh, but Jen doesn't hear me because she's sitting on the corner of the bed sobbing and she just keeps repeating I ruined your lint I ruined your lint Jen wasn't even Catholic. She just cared about me and, like, my beliefs. Uh, so the next year, I, I go to college, and I decide that this is it. You know, time to be an adult. Adults don't masturbate.
4: <laughs>
3: uh, so, so I find the Catholic Center on campus, and I go, and I find out they have these extracurricular classes, and one of them, I enroll in a thing called spiritual direction. And spiritual direction is where once a week I would meet with a nun and then we would talk about college and the temptations and, you know, through faith, how to overcome them. And I'm assigned a woman named Sister Elena. Now, Sister Elena, she's probably 26, but she looks about 1,000. She's got this really boxy head that's like a quarter size, too big for her body. Her skin looks like she's been reaping wheat since she was born. Um, She's got this very quiet voice. And so for my first meeting, I go in and she sits me down in this sparse office and... She just asks me, you know, why have you decided to pursue spiritual direction? And I just blurt out, I want to stop masturbating. <laughs> and then I look down and I'm, I just say, you know, I, I believe I'm going to hell. I think I need help. Sister Helena decides to help me. We go through all these different methods, all these different ways that she thinks could help me deal with my problem. She suggests a thing called meditative prayer. She says, so often when we pray, we speak at God. Rather than speaking at God, repeat a mantra in your head and open your mind and allow God to speak to you. So I sit in my dorm room and I just keep saying one, two, three, four, but I get so focused on the counting that even if God did talk to me, I didn't hear him. (laughs) At one point, she even suggests putting a parental lock on my computer. She says, that way, if you have the urge, you won't even be able to access the temptation. And then maybe give that password to a close friend, like your roommate. Now my roommate, John, was like the coolest person in the world. He had sex all the time, which I wished I could be doing. There were so many nights that I would wake up to this high-pitched giggle and then I would just see this beautiful naked woman in the moonlight on top of him and then I would have to pretend to be asleep but really I was just memorizing her silhouette for later. (laughs) John was also this bearded artist and a staunch republican which I thought was weird but then I visited the East Village in New York and like I I get it. (laughs) He also was agnostic but was totally cool with me and my beliefs. He never once made me feel weird. But then again, if I had gone to John and said like, hey, I'm trying to stop masturbating, so here's the password to my computer so I don't look at porn, he might have had a different idea. It would have been like a very dirty Gandalf of like, keep it secret, keep it safe. (laughs) Then like 30 years later, talking to his kids, being like, oh, you think your roommate was weird? No, I I wasn't going to do it. The meetings continue with Sister Elena. It doesn't help as well that I'm a theater major, and half my classes are called movement, which are just 80 minutes of sitting in yoga pants and stretching. I also am in a thing called contact improv, which if you don't know, is where you make contact with a person around you, and then you find the different ways you can move your bodies and share weight. Um, One day, a girl named Debbie Diesel comes up, which is a real name, uh, comes up to me and she's this fit, beautiful brunette. And she just asks me, like, hey, do you have a safety pin? And I say, no. She goes, oh. Well, then I guess everyone's going to see my thong today. And we did.
4: And it was great.
3: It was this, like, baby pink G string. Anyway, class became 80 minutes of me trying to pretend like I didn't have an erection. Sister Elena. I could tell she was getting very frustrated that nothing was working. She began to equate all of these things, all of my my friends, these classes, anything that distracted me from my faith with demons. She tells me that some time away she thinks would help. So she asks me to go on this retreat with other Catholic students. I tell her I'll I'll look into it. I come back the next week and she asks me, hey, have you signed up yet? And I, I say, no, I haven't. And Sister Ellen and I had this way of talking where it sounded almost like she scripted it in her head before she would say it out loud. She sits me down and very deliberately says, you know, well, you need to sign up. Because if you don't, the devil will make things come up in your schedule.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: that night I get a call from my mother. She owned a catering business and was understaffed. She just goes, hey, JT, can you help me out in a couple of weeks? I'd really appreciate it. I look at my calendar, and it's the weekend of the retreat. The next morning, the university announces auditions for a children's theater show, also that same weekend. Now, like, I don't believe in, like, red-skinned, goateed, pitchforked devil, but Sister Eleanor was right. Things did come up. You know, it's very difficult to think that all of the people that love you and the one thing in this world that makes you happy could be the work of Satan. But I also begin to think that maybe the devil has better things to do than have a couple get married and hire my mother to do the food. (laughs) And maybe Satan didn't turn Rumpelstiltskin into a musical and have the University of Kansas premiere it. (laughs) It becomes, it becomes this battle between rational JT and Catholic JT. You know, rational JT being like, you're being manipulated, but then Catholic JT saying, this is a test of your faith, and you're failing. Rational JT knows that people masturbate, that it's a healthy, normal thing. But Catholic JT sees all these devout Catholics in the world and thinks they must have conquered it. And I'm the only one who still does this. It's like, you know how sometimes when people smoke pot, I've heard, um, when they get, they get really high and they think that they're like the highest person in the room. That's how it is with me and masturbating. I'm like, nobody else does it. Everyone thinks that I do it. And no one wants me around. I stay stuck in this loop, just stuck in this guilty loop. And so I go to this party. And I go back to the fridge at the back of the apartment and I'm putting away a sugar jar full of vodka, which is another story for another time. (laughs) And I meet this girl named Stacy. And Stacy's this really cool artist who lives in town. She's got these pointed features and she's got this maniacal but infectious laugh. And we just hit it off instantly. We talk all night. Our connection, it's, it's electric. I get her number. And we start dating. Things get... Really deep, really fast. I fall in love with Stacy, like so in love. And it's the first time. And because Stacy challenges me, you know, she's an atheist, which I had never had to confront at this point in my life. But she was the first person who would say what she thinks, would ask what I think, and would just be interested and want to talk about it. One of the contentions in our relationship as things progress is that I don't have sex. You know, i had been saving myself for marriage, but then I decided, you know, I was in love. I was just saving myself until I'm ready. One night after we fool around, that, that was another thing. I would do everything but and act like it wasn't sex, but whatever. And then we're fooling around and she stops and says, I'm worried. She says, I, I don't want to take your virginity because I just, I don't know if I could deal with your guilt and your personal demons. And I respect her for that. About a month later, we're at this bar, and it's a cool place, and there's jazz playing. uh, And we've been drinking, but we're not drunk. And I realize that tonight's the night. So I go up to Stacey, and I kiss her, and I I just say, I'm ready. So we run to her apartment. Um, We light candles, and the one thing I wanted to have was I wanted Nickel Creek to be playing, so. (laughs) So we put on Nickel Creek, which, fun fact, if you don't know Nickel Creek, their albums bounce back and forth between, like, really nice ballads and then, like, fast instrumental bluegrass jams. So it ends up being this really disjointed but romantic time. Which I guess is about as much as you can hope for the first time you have sex. Uh, As I'm laying there next to her, I'm happy. Because I'm connecting with another person who's right in front of me. But then I start to just feel guilty and terrible. Like I've abandoned my faith, which is such a big part of me. Stacey and I talk a lot about our beliefs. You know, she would ask how I could call myself Catholic but break all these rules. But she actually tells me that she wishes she could have faith. But she just can't teach herself to believe. And I get that. Because I am the opposite. I wish that I didn't have faith because I would be so much happier and freer. About a year and a half into our relationship, uh, Stacy goes into uh, a short like, study abroad to Costa Rica. She comes back a couple weeks later and things are not the same. We go out one night and while I'm getting drinks at the bar, I see her in the corner and she's giving her number to another guy. And so I just run up to her and I just lose it. I say, what the fuck? And she just turns and calmly is like, you know, no, 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 he's just trying to date my roommate. It's not a big deal. And I just go, Jesus. And then she loses it and just goes, I can't, I can't, we're done. And I run away. And just as fast as we started, we're over. What's funny is Stacy was telling the truth. That guy had no interest in her. But She does very quickly start dating one of the guys she met while in Costa Rica. And fun fact, they're still together to this day, and they celebrate their anniversary two weeks before we broke up. So I was right to be upset. I was just very wrong about what about. It's okay, because we were each other's trial relationships, You know where you learn what you need from a partner and how to coexist. I learned that I had a lot of problems that I wasn't dealing with. You know, my religious and sexual frustrations had caused me to be just perpetually broken and self-absorbed. And Stacy found somebody who wasn't. Being alone, I um, am forced to look out for the first time in a long time, and I begin to see a lot of the people that I met at the Catholic Center, people who I kind of really liked, they become so steadfast in their beliefs that they were turning a deaf ear to any other people's ideas. I just knew that that's not what I wanted to do. Because, see, Stacey would sit and listen. And she had taught me to sit and listen. And through that listening, you know, I learned that I didn't want to be absorbed by other people's judgment. I learned that God is whatever you want him or her to be. Because here's a fun fact nobody fucking knows. You don't. So my God has a sense of humor. For the two months after Stacey and I broke up, I worked at the produce department at Target, and every single fruit that I dealt with for the next two months had come from Costa Rica. I think that was God's way of forcing me to deal with my problems. But see, when God has a sense of humor, he becomes more of a friend than a dictator. And that's easier to get behind. I end up meeting somebody else who I'm with to this day. We've been together for close to five years. Because with this person, unlike with Stacey, I can give myself completely and wholly to this person. And she reciprocates. And it's just really nice to feel complete. And we do sleep together. And, you know, part of me does have that tinge of Catholic guilt for committing a mortal sin. A bigger part of me is just in love. And I know that God, as a friend, supports that. And the release from that guilt makes me feel fucking great. Thank you.
0: You
2: know, there was a period in my 20s where every single fruit I dealt with came from Costa Rica as well. (laughs) And adults do masturbate and sometimes they record their orgasms and clip them into stamps.com ads. (laughs) Um, Actually... People have been asking lately why I have not uh, done a new kinky story in a long time. I, it, actually, I, I was also raised very, very devoutly Catholic, and uh, I think that that did contribute to my becoming rather kinky. Yeah. A, a while back, I did a story on the show uh, called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And it was such a hit that eventually I ended up being asked to teach classes at that very camp. And I started to really get a big head about it, to think like, wow, I am, I'm a real natural at this. I'm a real pro. I, I know my stuff. So I started teaching a class called Everything You Can Do to an Ass Other Than Fuck It. But about the third time I taught this class, you know, I literally have a young man who is my demo bottom, who lets down his drawers and I do all sorts of terrible things to his butt right in front of a big room full of people. And the third time I taught it, by the time I was starting to feel a little bit too, you know, big for my britches, I finished the class, and I was like, well, that's it. That's everything you can do to an ass other than fuck it. And someone raised a cattle prod, an electric cattle prod. He's like, you forgot something. He said, electro. And I was mortified because that's a huge, that's a whole genre. That's a whole (laughs) branch of the kink tree, and I had totally forgotten that. So I said to the guy, okay, uh, as my penance, I will let my pants down, and you, young pupil, can poke me in the ass as punishment with your electric cattle prod. Well, what happened next was that there I was with my pants down in front of a room full of people. He pokes me with this thing. The thing about electric cattle prods is it does not hurt on the surface of the skin. It hurts very deep inside you. It feels like a knife is going through your central nervous system, right? So he does this to me and suddenly I am like Christopher Reeves in Superman because that's my Superman. I was born in the 70s. I flew directly into the audience, knocked someone's laptop and sent it flying. And the camp was furious at me because they were like, we've caught you here teaching a class, you just agreed to do some electro and forgot that a person should be bound <laughs> before they're shocked with something like that. And you you've pretty much injured our students. So there was that and there were a few relationships that went sour that made me really feel like I lost my mojo and I stopped being kind of kinky for a while and and now I'm starting to feel it again I'm starting to feel like no damn it I gotta take back the mantle. So recently I looked up and I was like looking back at the good old days when I was much more confident as a kinkster and I used to send out these tweets of Kevin's kink tips. So. In order to get myself more in the habit of being proud and being confident about my kinky knowledge, I want to share some of these kink tips with you tonight. I think they should be very useful for you. Kevin's kink tip number two. If you blast white noise on the stereo to mask the spanking sounds, the neighbors probably hear white noise and spanking. I think that that's true. I don't think those white noise machines do a goddamn thing. Uh, Kevin's kink tips number five, airport security might be confused by cuffs and chains but they'll put two and two together once they get to the dildos. (laughs) Many times but I have I have one particular dildo that I have been informed, no sir that is a weapon. (laughs) Kevin kink tip number 28, with nipple piercings, some It feels like the very shirt you're wearing is flirting with you. (laughs) If you get a shirt that has a seam going right down here, you can walk down the street being like, hey, shirt! (laughs) Kevin's king number forty. The inventor of the trackpad for Macs had a deep-seated hatred for those of us who use silicone lubes. Yeah, that's that's always the that's when the machine has to go, and it's like, oh yeah, I ruined another trackpad. <laughs> Kevin's king tips number forty-seven. At a buy orgy. You're a weirdo if you don't say, may I touch you? At a gay dude's orgy, you're a weirdo if you do. It's true, we're really bad at consent. <laughs> we're creepy. We are creepy. Uh, Kevin's getting to 53. If you tie a fellow up, make sure you still have access to his butt. I shouldn't, I just shouldn't deal with ropes. I am like Buster Keaton with ropes. It's. We're all going to be tripping over everything. Uh, Number 54, the longer you keep a blindfold on someone, the more likely they'll forget you haven't been to a gym in a decade. (laughs) That's just wishful thinking on my part. I don't think that's true at all. Uh, Number 55, discussion threads on FetLife.com make great band names, like Urine Play in Detroit. (laughs) You would hate to show out there and find a band and be like, wait, I'm going home completely dry? But even tonight, uh, someone in the audience, a dear friend of mine, wrote to me while we were backstage and said, he's here with his husband tonight, he said, Kevin, I need you to explain cake farting to my husband. I'm at a loss, and I wrote back, farting is the sexiest and he wrote lol that's a partial explanation and i said oh right yeah if it's up to me the cake is completely optional (laughs) so i'm already back at it i'm already given the good tips as of tonight all right folks i want to bring our next storyteller up to the stage Uh, He pitched us a fascinating story a while ago, and I've been wanting to work with him ever since. So I was so excited to see when he pitched this new story. Uh, He has done work at The Moth. He's got a novel and a book of poetry. So very talented, multifaceted uh, young man here. Please welcome to the stage James
3: Gordon! (laughs)
5: It just hit me. I'm here at Risk Live. Concord Music Hall, right? Me and all you motherfuckers. Let's go. The Bulls are ahead 86 to 80. It is late in the season and they're beating the Orlando Magic who they have not beaten all season. Okay, that's total bullshit. I'm playing Sega Genesis Bulls versus Blazer and I haven't beat the Orlando Magic all season because that damn Penny Hardaway scores like 60 or 70 points. I can't stop that motherfucker for some reason. 435 left in the fourth quarter, and this is gonna be it. I'm gushing, gleeing, drinking my Kool-Aid, stereotype, and I'm just really excited. It wasn't grape, it was red. And, and and yeah. And all of a sudden, my best friend who happens to be my brother, comes in the room, hey G, go up to the park with me, I gotta meet Jeff and get a cartridge. I'm like, dude, wait a couple more minutes, I'm almost done, I'm about to win. He said, motherfucker, put the game down, pause it and come on. Now, if anybody's a gamer in here, in present day gaming, you don't tell a gamer who's about to achieve something they never had before to pause the game. Right. But more importantly than that, those old ass games like Atari and and television and Sega Genesis, you might pause them and guess what? It'll be frozen right there and you have to start that bitch all over again. So I'm like, bro, no, man, come on, come on. He's like, dude, man, you don't want me to go up there by myself, what would Ma say? He played the mama card. The rule in the house is don't let your brother go anywhere without you. I'm like, oh shit, all right, cool. I pause the game, I turn off the TV because it is my mom and dad's house. I don't want to run the electricity up, so I turn it off and we go to the park. Rainbow Beach, it's along South Shore Drive. Everybody goes there, you play tennis, swim, and all that shit there. And what happens? Number one, Jeff doesn't show up there. Number two, my brother gets asked to play basketball. Now, my brother's second team All City. Of course, he gets picked to play. He wants to play. He said, man, it's only going to be a couple games. Guess what else happens? There's a space empty on the team. Bro, come on, play. I'm like, dude, we got to get back to the game. He says, man, it's only be one game. Don't worry about it. Five games later, we're still on the court. We're winning. I'm all caught up in it. And the sixth game, you ever had that moment in your life? You look back and say, I shouldn't have went, I shouldn't have said, I should have turned, I should have stopped. You ever have one of those moments? That sixth game was that moment. Because coming on the court were two other dudes who had already played and they got picked up. And three vice lords. Leon, Chuck, and Bobatunde. Now, just real quick on the gang demographic. I lived on the east side of Exchange. There are train tracks, the metro tracks. And on the east side of Exchange, there was everybody that wore their hat to the right. Gangster disciples, black disciples, black gangsters. This is back then before everything just went together and then haywire. And then on the west side of the tracks, there was everybody who wore their hat to the left. Vice Lords, Blackstone Rangers, and so forth. These guys not only were notorious gangbangers, they reeked of alcohol. Imagine the Cubs winning and driving through Wrigley Field on the hottest day with your windows down and you can just smell the alcohol. It's palpable. You can reach out and touch that shit and get drunk yourself. That's what they smell like. This was just bad written all over it. I look at my brother. My brother, of course, says, man, we can beat them real quick. I said, damn, I should have used my maturity and said, no, bro, we need to go. But I didn't. I'm caught up in it. The game starts, we jump out to a 14-2 lead, easy. And the trash talking starts. Leon, he's not a good trash talker. I am a tremendous trash talker. Anybody follows me on social network now? Knows I'm a trash talking motherfucker right now. He says, man, I just scored on you. I say, hey Leon, when I get done here, I'm gonna go fuck your mom without showering. I'm gonna fucking, she's gonna love it. you probably see my shoes over your house plenty of times, you know. You know the Jordans? Right. It just go, and, it, and it, but then it digresses. It starts getting more personal. He says, hey, I seen your dad out there selling crack. I said, hey, he was selling it to your dad. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about.
4: <laughs>
5: he says, punk, I say, pussy. He says, punk, again, I said, you're a bitch. <laughs> Next thing you know, there is a basketball screaming through the air right upside my head. We've got action, ladies and gentlemen. It's the three vice lords and my brother and myself. Now, just real quick, my brother and I are not gang-affiliated, but because we live on this side of the tracks and all our friends are happen to be gangster disciples, guilt by association, it's on. We're punching. Pow, pow. Sounds like a fucking Batman uh, old-school TV, but it's pow, pow, bang. And then, all of a sudden, there's some separation. Anybody's ever been in a confrontation before, there's a moment where you make one of two decisions. Decision number one, we can take these guys, so let's keep fighting. We chose number two, run, motherfucker, run. <laughs> We also know that when you're, when you're close to your house like this, and it's two, you break up. You split up and say, hey. And because my brother and I are best friends and siblings, we have eye contact, nonverbal communications communication that say, hey, you go that way, I'm going to go this way, I'll meet you back at the house, be safe, all right, cool. My brother is an all-city athlete. He takes off running. I, no, I, no. I've never been fast at anything. Okay, taking tests and and, and spelling, but that's not good right now. (laughs) So I take off running too, but I'm smart, so I say I'm going to South Shore Drive. If you're familiar with our city's demographics, South Shore Drive starts at 83rd, goes through Hyde Park, and right around the museum it becomes Lakeshore Drive. Lakeshore Drive continues north and becomes Sheridan. It is a very... Big street, popular street, nobody would do anything to anybody on this street. It'd be stupid. (laughs) As I'm casually, slightly jogging down South Shore Drive, all I hear is, hey motherfucker, we gonna get you! In a 1989 black Ford O'Bonneville, if you can remember, the box joint, And of all things they're playing through their kicker box, is N.W.A.'s fuck the police. (laughs) As I look back on that right now, I said, shit, for all the time police pull over black men for nothing, where the fuck are they right now? (laughs) So I start running, thinking still, nobody's going to do anything on South Shore Drive. I cut. Back through the fence. There's a fence, and it's it's like a long pathway in the park. So I cut through, run across. I cross 78th Street. There's a basement, and for some reason it said I said turn this way. I turn into that yard, and the basement is a jar. I said I'm gonna go in here. So I go in. It's pitch dark in there. I hit the light. I'm gonna hide in here. I don't know how long I'm gonna stay, but I'm gonna stay long enough till it gets dark, and they won't get me. I guess about 15, 20 minutes I'm there, it hits me. I gotta pee real bad. Ain't talking about like, oh my goodness, I can hold it for a couple minutes. No, I'm talking about I drank that PBR that y'all like. I drank about 10 of them. I, I, I like Green Line myself. I'm sorry, it just runs through me. The, the, the PBR, I drank about 10 of them. And I'm holding them, dancing. And shit. So I said, okay, fine. I'm gonna run out, I'm gonna run out there real quick pee. I run to open up the door, jump out, and guess what? The man, a woman, and four kids are on the other side of the door. Immediately, I slam the door back and jump back inside the the basement, and they open up the door. The man has this booming-ass voice. What the fuck are you doing in here? I'm like, oh, huh. And while I'm getting ready to explain, the mother and the children form a barricade in front of the door. The irony is, this is what my family would have done if somebody would have invaded. But before I could sit in that reverie, he said again, "Motherfucker, what are you doing in our basement? What are you trying to steal?" I said, "No, sir. Real quick, rapid fire. No, sir. I'm not. I'm not trying to steal anything. These guys are chasing me. They're after me. I saw your door open. I was just in here. I'm not trying to steal anything. Just, I'm gonna leave now. I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to do anything. And then." The irony again, he becomes my father in front of me, this strong, caring man. son, you want me to call the police? Do you need any help? you need me to go with you? you want me to walk you home? I'm like, no, sir. I don't want you to be involved at all. I apologize for coming in your home. I'm just going to leave now. And I go past and I slide past. And the mother reminds me of my mother and said, baby, you be okay now. Like black mama say, you be okay, baby. Be safe out there. I pissed myself. Um... <laughs> shit happens <clears throat> no i'm so glad the shit didn't happen but I, that, you know you, stop okay so i run back and now i've crossed 78 i'm headed towards 77 and here they come again my task is not so daunting because all i have to do is get the 76 and get over to cole's here's why there's an uneasy alliance excuse me truce between the blackstones and the GDs, and it says this. You can come to the park, play ball, swim, whatever, and then leave and go back, safe passage. You can't stop anywhere in there because it's like you're on some nonsense and we're gonna gonna get you, we're gonna shoot you, kill you, all that shit. So all I had to do was get the 76 and Coles, which was like the Gangster Disciple Central Nervous System right there. That's all I had to do. So I'm running, I'm running, and the next thing I hear is, bang 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 oh shit they're shooting this is no longer trash talking this is no longer something that you could just walk away from and talk about it the next day they are shooting at me I graduated college I just finished my first year of teaching, going into my second. I was moving to a new school district, which was paying more money, better benefits. I'm not supposed to die. I'm not a gangbanger. I went to Lutheran church. I was an acolyte. I played in the bell choir. I, I didn't, I did. <laughs> big ass bells, that was some stereotypical shit. I had some big ass bells, Bang bang, bang. Small bullshit, but anyway. It's not supposed to happen. So I start running harder, faster, again. Bang, bang, bang. Splat. Right here. I still have the scar to this day. It gets me, click. Now it doesn't go in, but it hits me enough where it tears the skin off and I can see white meat. I I never believed that shit was happening. I figured I'm black. How am I gonna have white meat underneath it. it? Doesn't make any sense. that shit was there and now I've never been fast like I told you but now the run is labored the walk is even more so and I'm at 76 in South Shore Drive one block west and I'm safe they're getting closer the pain is just shooting through terror has gripped me I think maybe I want to start crying, but I'm too scared to start crying. And I'm like, "Shit, my mom is gonna be pissed off."
4: <laughs>
5: All of a sudden, a Ford Tempo, red, four-door, comes screeching up ah! out of the doors. Two of my cousins who had been in the armed services, and now they were civilians, and my brother. My brother says, "Bobo, get in!" And I don't know why he called me Bobo at that moment. I, just real quick, I hate that name to right now. My grandma called me that shit and she's still here. Get in! If I jump in, my cousins are firing. This is happening on South Shore Drive. Four o'clock in the afternoon, they're shooting. I said, well, that makes sense. They were shooting me, they're shooting back. Okay, bang, bang, bang. Cuz you in? Yeah, I'm in. They jump back in, peel off. Ah! Left, get the coals. Nobody's behind us. My brother, bro, are you okay? I'm like, motherfucker, I've been shot. He says, I see that, are you okay? I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they take me to South Shore Hospital. Thank goodness my father, who been in the armed services, had insurance. Go in, go out, they ask all these questions. What happened? man, I was trying to dunk, came down wrong. The nurse says, oh, you should be careful trying to do that stuff. You gotta be in shape to be trying to dunk. I said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. We get home, I tell my cousins, thank you. My brother and I go inside. My dad says, he sees the big ass bandage, I'm like, Bobo, what happened? Like, dad, I I got the ball on the break. I was trying to dunk. I hit the rim, fell down. Says, Bobo, you gotta know your limitations, son. You haven't been playing ball in a while. Right there, you're absolutely right. I go in, pick up my controller, turn the TV back on, hit the controller, and what do you fucking know? The game is frozen right there. 435 left to go in the fourth quarter, 86 to 80. But I gotta tell you, I took a deep breath, And I've never felt so glad to hit the reset button. Thank you.
2: James Gordon. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, folks, we have two more stories tonight. Like I said, we're all over the map emotionally tonight. We've got uh, <laughs> lots of ups and downs still to come. I want to bring our next storyteller up to the show. She is a singer. She is a uh, the singer from the band Annalise and the Backsliders. And you can Google her. She's been on the Moth Story Hour. Please welcome to the stage Annalise.
6: My brother Daniel is only two years older than me, but it might as well be 200, because when it comes to what happened in our house when we were kids, we are living in two entirely different worlds, especially when it comes to my stepdad, Bill. I am struggling to reconcile the stepfather that I knew and loved with the stepfather that my brother experienced. So, Daniel called me the other night. We haven't lived in the same city for probably about 30 years. Our relationship goes in cycles. Sometimes he will call me repeatedly, even obsessively, and then I won't hear from him for a while, and that's usually after I said something that pisses him off. Our conversations have a way of Sometimes unexpectedly going down this rabbit hole into the past in a way that is very intense and not normal, but I didn't know that until one time when I was back when I was married and I got off on one of those calls. My husband said to me, Do you realize that every time you talk to your brother, you cry? (laughs) I had not realized that. That's ridiculous, but. But um, I cried the other night, so hey, not much has changed. My parents officially divorced when I was six years old, but the trouble started a couple years before that when I was four. My mom came from a good Polish Catholic family, but she was a rebel, which she proved by marrying my Muslim Palestinian father. So. Things went great, I guess, for a while until they moved back to her hometown of St. Louis and my father began behaving oddly. So he thought that she was having an affair with the janitor at the place where he worked and she'd never even been there and he thought different people were plotting against him. He finally realized that he needed help and he asked my mom to take him to the hospital. So after several readmissions, though, he just seemed to be getting worse. He was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And he started saying that he didn't think my brother and I were really his children, which is the definition of insane. Because if you saw a picture of my dad, I look exactly like him. But my mom started to worry that he might hurt us, and so she felt like she had to leave. So we moved out, we moved in with my grandparents, and um, my mom got a job. We were gonna stay there till she got on her feet. Soon after we had moved in there, uh, my brother and I were playing in the driveway in front of the house. I was on my bright red hippity hop, which was a big ball, right? It had a handle, you could sit on it, I love that thing. Um, My brother, I think, was on his bicycle. My dad pulled up in his big boat of a car, and he got out. And when I first saw him, I was really, I remember feeling this rush of happiness. And then it quickly evaporated because even though he was dressed in his usual suit and tie, he was sweating a lot and he looked really pale. And he walked right by me, he didn't even see me. And he went up and he rang the doorbell and when my mom opened the door, he got down on his knees And he started sobbing and begging her to come back. And my mom just kept standing there going, no, no. And then my grandfather appeared and he said to him gently, you have to go home now. You You have to leave. Go on home. And my dad stood up and he turned around and he saw my brother and he put his hand out and said, will you come with me? And my brother took his hand And they walked down the driveway together and there were just tears streaming down my brother's face and they got in the car and they left but my dad brought daniel back a few hours later because he couldn't stop crying so we settled into a routine at my grandparents house my mom and i shared a room and we had matching twin beds with these blue flowered bedspreads with these little white dangly balls around the edges and my brother had his own room with a green bunk bed and my grandfather made dinner for us most nights he liked to cook and my brother and I we played together a lot you know we had the typical sibling fights like I remember One fight we had, we were fighting over a can of shoestring potatoes and we were both like tugging on it and then he let go of it and it flew back and hit me in the mouth and knocked out a tooth. And my mom was in the bathroom at the time and I remember going to the bathroom door and just putting my nose like right in the crack of the door and just screaming bloody murder. This poor woman, she's trying to pee or whatever she's doing in there. And I remember her saying, you know, go get a banana. And for some reason, that shut me up. I know, I know. I don't know. I liked fruit. But, so this stuff, these fights drove my mom crazy. But my brother and I also played together really well. And we would make up all these games together. So one of our favorites was on Saturday mornings, we'd get up. We'd turn on cartoons, and we would each throw a thick blanket over ourselves so we couldn't see, and we'd crawl around on the living room floor on my grandparents' olive green shag carpeting. It was the late 60s, and my grandparents were on it. And we would pretend that we were roly-poly bugs. So the game was, like, you, if you bumped into something, you had to roll over on your back, and you couldn't get back up unless the other person found you without talking and nudged you back up. We loved this game. We would play this forever, just rescuing each other. But underneath this normalcy, there was a deep pit of something scary. Because nobody ever talked about what was going on with my dad. And... I remember I didn't say anything about it or ask about it, you're not gonna believe this, until I was in my mid-twenties. That's how long it took. And when I finally asked about it, I really only did it because my mom and I were in the car together and she was driving, so we didn't have to look at each other. And I said to her, Mom, I was just wondering what did you tell Daniel and I about you know, what was going on with Dad? And she just kept her eyes straight ahead. And she had this, I remember she had this really, you know, light tone of voice. But I saw her hands imperceptibly, like, tighten on the steering wheel. And she said, we didn't tell you anything. And I was stunned at this. You know, I was thinking, like, what the fuck? And I said, but you we must have asked, I mean, we, we must have asked, like, why we went to go live with grandma and grandpa, or, or why dad wasn't around much anymore. And in that same tone of voice, she's like, nope, you didn't ask. And I had such a tangled, like, rush of feelings. But I remember the one that was the most prominent was just a deep sadness that at four years old, I had already gotten it stitched into my DNA that you don't ask questions. You don't talk about it. On top of that, soon after the divorce, my dad goes back overseas, and he marries a girl from a village near where he had grown up, and this was a girl picked out by his mother, and he brought her back to the States, and my stepmother just hated me instantly, and this just brought a whole new level of misery. So into this mix comes Bill. Now, my mom met him at a place called the Ethical Society, whose tagline is, A Welcoming Home for Humanists. So this was my mom's non-religious substitute for the Catholic Mass, which my grandparents loved. And they loved it even more when she came home with a black man in tow. (laughs) Bill was a big, stocky, ex-football-playing black man with snow-white hair. It had been white since he was young. And he always dressed really well. He dressed casually, but, like, his jeans were always pressed. And he had a number of those, like, shiny polyester shirts, you know, the bright ones with the patterns on them, like, buttoned down. And he also had several African dashikis. I liked those. Those were pretty. And um, he always smelled good. And when he would come through the front door at my grandparents' he brought with him a light that was like palpable and i would just fling my tiny body at him and he would scoop me up and he would hug me like nobody ever did i felt so protected and i wasn't the only one who felt this way because you know years later we were in a shopping mall together and we're going through the mall And this little girl, who's like, I don't know, maybe three years old, sees him from across the mall and makes a beeline and starts running for him. And I thought, she must be from some family that he knew, but I quickly realized she wasn't when her mother was, like, dragging her away. But I thought, this kid, like, I was like, I I get you, sister. I feel the same way, you know? It's a kid magnet. And on top of that, he was really, really fun. He had a super high-pitched laugh, and he laughed all the time. He thought everything was funny. And when I was in acting school and I was in shows, I could always tell exactly where he was in the theater, even if it was pitch dark. And there were so many shows that I walked off stage to choruses of people backstage going, who the hell is that woman laughing? (laughs) Oh my gosh. And he used to take Daniel and I to movies all the time. So when I was 12, he took us to see The Exorcist, which scared the living shit out of me. And he thought it was absolutely hilarious. And so, you know, when Linda Blair's head is, like, spinning around, when everybody in the theater is like, Aah! Bill is sitting there hooting and laughing and screaming, spin around again, baby! Spin around again! <laughs> My brother Daniel tells me that he loved Bill, too. He says that Bill understood him. And he played with them. You know, my brother is exceptionally bright. He's very creative. And he could always just draw beautifully. And I don't know, for too short of a time, everybody was happy. And then when I was eight and my brother was 10, my mom announced that we were going to move in with Bill. So my grandparents were thrilled my grandmother asked my brother if he wanted to have a Negro for a father. But my mom didn't give a shit, and she found an apartment for us in a very liberal part of St. Louis and in a place where nobody would look twice at a mixed-race family. And so we all moved in, and I was happy because for the first time I had my own little room. Shortly after we moved in, we got to get a kitten. But... Something shifted, and there was a kind of tension that hadn't been there before. Bill always liked wine, but now it seemed like there was always a bottle of something close by. Now, my mom worked full time, and Bill was Mr. Mom. And so suddenly we had rules in our house. So dinner was right, promptly at 5 p.m. You had to eat everything you put on your plate. We had daily chores to do. They had to be done a particular way. Towels were folded in half and then in threes. And then my brother and I started getting grounded for breaking the rules. Now, I really didn't mind the rules because I think I was craving that structure. And I would fight with Bill. I mean, we, we definitely fought. But I was given to like really dramatic bouts of yelling, I hate you, I hate you. And he would say, oh, that's okay, baby, because I love you. Or he would say, okay, okay, well, why don't you stick that lower lip out a little bit further? I can't quite see it. Daniel would fight with Bill, too. But their fights didn't have a sense of humor like that. There was something really hard underneath it that I didn't understand. And my brother and I had never been hit, but now my brother started getting smacked. I guess I was around nine years old when this first started happening, and I I never saw the beating, but I always heard the yelling that led up to it. And my brother remembers that the first time it happened was because my mom and Bill were gonna have an adults-only barbecue, and we were told that we had to go to bed early. For that party. And my brother was not happy about that and he let his feelings be known by hiding firecrackers in the barbecue pit. I know you've got to give him points on that one. I told you he was creative. So when those things went off, like all hell came raining down. I don't remember hearing them go off, but I remember seeing my mom marching through the apartment with a brown extension cord that was going to be used for Daniel's punishment. In the beginning, my mom was involved with that, but I feel like fairly soon the fights were really just between Bill and Daniel. I was really confused by this, because Bill was the one who made us these like outrageous school lunches that were like triple-decker club sandwiches with frilly toothpicks in them. And Bill was the one who came to the school to get me when I was sick with a kitten zipped up in his coat that he snuck into the principal's office. And Bill was the one who defended me when the school doctor told me that I had a crooked spine and I called home crying and Bill just like slammed down on that school and he was the one that I talked to when I had problems with friends or I had trouble with a teacher. He spent an hour once teaching me how to say, fuck you very much, so quickly that people would think you were saying, thank you very much. <laughs> fuck you very much. What? Oh, I said, thank you very much.
4: <laughs>
6: but Bill was also the one who started drinking more and more and became sullen and angry. And Bill was the one who would get furious if the towels weren't folded right or the steps weren't swept well enough. And Bill was the one who would stop talking to you suddenly, leaving you wondering what you had done wrong. But here's the difference between me and my brother. When Bill stopped talking to me, I would just go into my room and hide until it had passed. But my brother, he couldn't do that. And so he would keep saying, why aren't you talking to me? Why won't you talk to me? And sometimes he would follow him around the house, and the whole thing would just blow up. By the time I was 13, these fights had turned into just like all-out brawling, like, punching, furniture falling, brawling. And I know now that far greater than the physical scars for my brother, far worse than that, was the sense of worthlessness that got pounded into him. But at the time, I just wanted it to stop. I just, I couldn't handle it. I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to fix it. And I felt like I was standing with one foot on either side of an ever-widening chasm. Like I had, I had one foot on my brother's side and one foot on Bill's side. And that position was getting harder and harder to maintain. And I needed a father more than I needed a brother. So... I just kind of divorced my brother. It's a weird trick of the head. It's a weird switch where I just suddenly felt like an only child, like I didn't have a brother. I didn't set out to deliberately ignore him, but uh, when we saw each other in the hallway at school, we didn't speak. We didn't hang out together at home or anywhere. We just didn't talk. And my brother became the black sheep of the family. So he was in trouble at school. He stole some stuff. I don't even know what all the details are. That's what's so ridiculous. Because I, my strategy was, I just threw myself into so many activities that I was never home. I became the person who was good. I got straight A's, and and I was funny, and... And I could sing, and I did shows, and I did everything right, which is its own kind of prison. But at the time, it was like a seesaw, and the lower my brother went, the higher I went. And I needed that role. I, I coveted that role, even if I had gained it at my brother's expense. So my brother he managed to escape our house and go to college and then he just never came home I mean I think in 30 years maybe I could count on two hands the times that I saw him and so the past just became the past right? but that's not true, is it? So when my brother called me the other night, I was doing dishes. The conversation started the way it always starts, like, hey, how are you? I'm okay, how about you? And he said, hey, um, I've been thinking about something that I feel really bad about. And my stomach immediately tightened and I thought, oh no, here we go, we're about to go somewhere, I don't wanna go. But he went on and he said, do you remember when i punched you in the face and i made your nose bleed and i was like what? no. he said yeah, don't you remember we were in the car together and i was driving. we were arguing about something and i said wait a minute, what? how old was i? and he said you were like 14. and he said we were arguing and you started saying stuff to me, you started saying the kind of things that my mom And Bill would say to me things that made me feel like a loser and I don't know, I just got so upset and I lashed out and I feel terrible because I meant to pull my punch, but I misjudged the distance and I got you right in the face and you were bleeding. And I just stood there with my hands in the dishwater just crying because I didn't know what to say. I thought, how could I not remember something like that? I was 14, but then I thought maybe I don't remember it because it didn't feel like it was that big of a deal. And maybe it didn't feel like that big of a deal because I felt like I deserved it. He was my brother, and I owed him. But what I'm left wondering now is, how long do we all have to keep paying? Thank you.
2: Amazing. All right, folks, like I said, we have just one more story tonight. It's been a wonderful night. Great storytellers, great crowd. Our final storyteller for tonight is someone that has been recommended to me by various people around town. Various people have said, oh, my God, you have to have Archie on. Um, he has, uh, has a show called uh, Drinkers with Writing Problems. <laughs> that you can find at drinkerswithwritingsproblems.com. He has done some amazing work for The Moth and various other story shows in town as well. Please welcome to the show, Archie Jamjoon!
0: Hello. So, it was a hot, humid day in 2004. I was coming home from a lunch shift, and I opened the front door and I saw it. A long white line of powder on the side table where my roommates and I kept our keys. Now, I kind of lived in a drug den at the time, so you know, like my roommate was like a hippie with a ponytail and a lot of pot, and my other roommate was Pat, an FTM that I had dated and then we broke up, and he was really into the gay party scene. So it didn't really shock me to see a line of coke, but I'm not going to say it was normal either. We did have a house rule, though: finders keepers. And I thought about it. There were a bunch of dishes to do in the kitchen, and here was this line of coke. And this line of coke could make doing the dishes very fun. So I took a dollar bill out of my wallet, rolled it up, put it to my nose. And I was like, wait, no, no. Someone had told me you could get hep C from snorting things out of dollar bills. So I put that away and I grabbed a jewel receipt that I had in my pocket. And I rolled that up, put it to my nose, snorted. And I was like, oh my God, like this shit really burned. Like I had done Coke like two or 20 times before and I knew it had a very metallic taste. But this is like glass shards and I really started to worry. And then I thought about it. Pax had a friend in from Miami. This is obviously Miami cocaine, like the real deal. Everything I'd snorted before had just been Chicago's best baby powder. And that was enough to make me feel better. So I went to the kitchen and I put in my Britney Spears in the zone CD and I got in the zone. I was doing the dishes and I was like, Oh, like, I feel very nice. And then by the time Toxic, the fourth track came on, I was like, oh my God, I feel so good. Miami cocaine is a shit. I've never felt this good. And I finished the dishes and I looked over I saw the kitchen table. And you know what? The kitchen table could use a really good cleaning too. So I took everything off the kitchen table. I wiped down the kitchen table. I wiped everything that was on the kitchen table. There was even a jelly stain. So I took my finger and I scraped it off, put everything back. And then I looked up and saw the cabinets. I was like, let's clean the cabinets. I took everything out of the cabinets. I polished them. I cleaned the cabinets. And I put everything back in a better order. And I looked down and I saw the floor. I was like, floor. <laughs> At this point, Britney was in her third or fourth rotation. So I took that Britney seat out. I put a new Britney Spears in and I was mopping the floor and Pax walks in and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm cleaning. And he's like, yeah, but why? I'm like, the Miami cocaine, Miami cocaine. I took one line and now I can't stop cleaning. He's like, oh, um, uh, that's crystal meth. <laughs> like, holy shit. I was in my early 20s, very open to drug experimentation, but I had a few rules. One, no booty bumps. That's when you pretend your butthole is a nostril. (laughs) Two, no shooting up. And three, no crack or heroin. And crystal meth is like a crack heroin hybrid that really appeals to gay men and hillbillies. Like, in the right hands, it could bring our nation together. I had seen people smoke it, I knew that people shot it up, but I didn't know that you could snort it and I wish I was telling you a story how I accidentally snorted crystal meth and ended up with a clean kitchen, but one time is an accident, three or four times is recreational. When you're doing it a couple times a week, you have a problem. And it was very easy for me to fall into this problem because crystal meth became part of the apartment. See, Pax's friend really wasn't from Miami as much as he was from Florida. And he really wasn't from Florida as much as he was a state penitentiary. And he moved in, and he rebuilt his crystal career, and he gave out crystal meth to Pax and I. like It was breath mints, and we had halitosis. Like, Dude didn't buy toilet paper, but he sure gave us crystal. And it was like sometimes I could say no... But Crystal was the shit when we first met. Like, the apartment was never that clean. And, like, you don't really have to eat on Crystal Math. So I was so skinny. I was like my own little CK model. Even my mom was like, oh, my God, you're so handsome now. But why your eye is so big? And sex. You could have sex for hours on crystal meth. And I'm not talking two or three hours. I'm saying Friday night, I'd put a dick in my mouth and the next thing I knew was Sunday morning. Like the time just flies when you're having dick. But crystal, crystal, it's crystal. And soon enough, it began to show me what it would take from me. Since I was snorting it so much my nose would randomly bleed and one morning about six months into it I was washing my face in the bathroom mirror and I saw the trickle of blood came down my nose and it just looked like the life was coming out of me and I looked closer and my face was all skeletal, I had zits everywhere, the black underneath my eyes and like I didn't recognize myself, I saw like the third Olsen twin times Amy Winehouse, like who? Uh, Who had I become? And then came the hallucinations. I was at work one time and a dish called mango chicken walked by and like the aroma convinced me that there were chickens in the restaurant that wanted to attack me with mangoes. And I looked around the room and I saw chickens underneath the table like kicking mangoes at their feet. And they were very angry at me. And I was like, I'm crazy. And I had to get the fuck out of here. But that is what I would call like, a fonder memory of Crystal. At one point, like Florida got enough money to move out, but Pax and I were so like in the circle that another dealer moved in. And it was like two or three in the morning and I was very fucked up on GHB and alcohol and we were waiting for more Crystal to come in. And I realized I was gonna pass out soon. So I grabbed some cash I had in my pocket from serving and I like was like just get as much as you can and then I started snoring <laughs> and then when I woke up like my pants were undone and they were like pushed down and I was like did I like get up and pee but then why did I come back here I would have gone to my room and I'm like did he or someone the random people in the apartment like pull my pants down and like pretend I was a frat boy or something And like, I have been in rapey situations before, I have been drugged, I have been cornered, I have had choices taken away from me, and I'm starting to get that sinking feeling, but like, it doesn't hurt? But if I'm being honest, like, power bottom is a gross underestimate of what I am at this point. Like, I could probably shit standing up. So, I mean, I'm not gonna feel pain back there necessarily, but then I see something that pisses me off. My money is still on the counter. And that means there's no crystal in the house. So I'm pissed, and I walk out in the living room like a drug-depraved diva, and I, there's a bunch of people, I'm like, pointing at the drugs, I'm like, you have one job, and that's to have drugs, and you can't even do that. In less than a year, I have gone from in-the-zone Britney to Amy Olson Winehouse, and now I am like a mad and depraved Courtney Love. Like, what happened? And I look around, and all like the crackheads are looking at me like I'm crazy and like have you ever had a crackhead look at you like you're crazy (laughs) like it's not like being blessed by the Pope it's not (laughs) in the summer of 2005 my sister had her first baby and it was a breached birth she was rolled into the emergency room and by the time I got there my niece was on my sister's shoulder and my mom's like Pick up your niece, pick up your firstborn niece. My mom is dressed to the nines, my dad is so happy, my brother-in-law is like a photo ninja running around the room, and I think I'm supposed to have this like Lion King Simba moment with my niece, (laughs) but I am so fucked up, like I'm either high or recovering at this point, and like there's just no way I'm going to pick up my niece, this baby because my body's doing crazy shit and like I could jerk or tick and I'm gonna drop her and everyone is gonna see me for what I've become. So I just extend my hand out and I pat my niece on her shoulder. I don't even pick her up that day. And I think everyone in the room was just happier to think that I was scared of babies. And then I get to the car and I think about my life and like my friends and i'm thinking my friends are all insane even worse they think i'm insane and like two of them are going to go to jail soon for possession one of them's just contracted hiv cuz it's very hard to party safe all the time and i think about where my life is going and i realize i'm going to die i'm going to die soon like crystal is going to kill me maybe not immediately maybe not physically but something in me is going to die And I think about my niece, which makes me think about my aunt, Nathoi. Like, I didn't have the opportunity to grow up with any aunts or uncles because they were all in Thailand, but I did have one aunt until I was four, at which point she committed suicide and took a lot by taking a lot of pills. She was seven or eight months pregnant. She had a miscarriage, and it was just too much for her. I have always wondered what my life would have been like if she had stayed. What records would she have played for me? Would she have been a refuge when my parents were fighting? And I know that it is not about me, but why wasn't I enough to convince her to stay? And that's when I decided I had to try. I had to try and it wasn't immediate and it wasn't through magic and I am still no angel, I will have a drink. I will smoke weed. I will buy your extra prescription pills. <laughs> but I was not going to go down to crystal meth and the people that helped me the most didn't even know what was wrong with me. My parents came over to the apartment soon after my niece was born and Pax and I had like gotten high and cleaned it up and down and like, we were so proud and to be honest, I was a little proud because this was my first apartment and my parents walked in And I don't know if they saw like a stray pipe or Pax and I just looked crazy because we were crazy. But they walked around for five minutes and left. And my dad called me an hour later and he was so angry. And he was like, your mom can't even speak. What are you doing with your life? What's going on? This is not why we came to America. And I can hear my mom wailing in the background and then like part of me thinks she's being a little dramatic, but most of me just knows like her heart is breaking because I know the truth about my life and what mother wants that for her son? And so she calls me a couple weeks later and she's like, just move home, just move home. I will buy you a condo in one year. And I know she's fucking lying she's grasping at straws. She's just like offering me a crossroads and she will not let me go until I follow her. That's what my parents did. They saved the life they gave me. And I started dating a boy at the time and even though it didn't last, he just loved me so much and he was so sweet. And like, I just didn't wanna be high around him because when is the right time to tell someone you're dating you have a crystal meth problem? Like, Hi, things are going so well. I just want you to know if I stay on this path, I'll be shooting up soon. Like, no, you can't say that. And then of course, there was my niece, and she was a newborn, and then she was an infant, and then she was crawling around, and I just thought, God, you deserve such a better uncle than I am, and I know I am never gonna be the best uncle in the world, but if I could keep my teeth and not hallucinate, you might like me. And she does. We are both emotional, dramatic, artsy messes. Yes, I just called my 10-year-old niece a mess. And her favorite thing to do is force me to dance choreography to Justin Bieber songs. A guy that we would both date, but for obviously different reasons. Last month, one of my aunts in Thailand passed away. And my family went to our temple, to offer blessings to her. While we were eating lunch, Natasha turned to me and she said, I won first place at my violin contest, two first places, and I told her she had surpassed me, that during my requisite time as an Asian child playing a musical instrument, (laughs) I had only finished second twice. How did it feel when you won, I asked her, fine. Fine? Just fine? It only felt fine when you beat everyone?" She went on to explain that it wasn't that type of competition. That she had done her piece, went to the judges table, and she got a first place card. A lot of kids won first place that day. I wanted to say, what kind of fucking competition is that? What kind of new age hippie crap did my sister send you to? (laughs) It's not a competition till somebody cries. But I held my tongue, and I asked her if she'd seen Adele on Ellen that day. She had, and we did our best Adele at Jamba Juice impersonations. Can I have a large, but can you put in a small cup, please? Why? Because I would never say anything to bring my niece down. I will always wonder what my life would have been like with my aunt. But Natasha doesn't have to. She helped save her uncle. Thank you.
3: In the afterlife You could be headed for the serious try.
0: You make the scene all day, but tomorrow they'll be held to pay. Yeah, the afterlife would be headed for the Syriacite.
3: Now, you make the scene all day, but tomorrow they'll be held to pay. People listen attentively, I mean about future calamity. I used to think the idea was obsolete, until
5: I
4: heard the old man dampen his feet. <laughs>
2: that is all for this week's episode folks this is the squirrel not zippers behind me now and what will ever become of the fern imbroglio folks will this episode be remembered as the fern imperative will we ever reach the fern ultimatum we're all just gonna have to stay tuned In the meantime, I shall read the upcoming Risk Live shows on April 16th. We are back at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles on April 24th. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And on April 27th, we are in Vancouver. Vancouver, that pitch deadline is March 30th. So get those pitches in. The theme is overwhelmed on April 28th we are in Seattle, Washington. The theme is Enrage. The pitch deadline is March 31st. On April 30th, we're in Portland, Oregon. The theme is Despair. The pitch deadline is April 2nd. On May 15th, we're in Boston, Massachusetts. The theme that night is Respect. The pitch deadline is April 17th. Now on the 20th, of May. We have a very special show at the Bell House. It is a celebration of the state. My old sketch comedy group, we're coming out with a book about the state. So Janine Garofalo will be there. Carrie Kenny Silver will be there. Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter might be there. Some other special guests that we can't announce yet and there will be people checking in, members of the state checking in via Skype. So go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets for that very special show. Minneapolis is May 21st. The theme is repugnant. The pitch deadline is April 23rd. And Pittsburgh is coming up in June. The theme's going to be mesmerized, but we don't yet have a pitch deadline or, or a date for that. So just pitch us anyway, folks in Pittsburgh. Philadelphia is June 17th. June 17th for Philly. The theme is Disgusted. The pitch deadline is May 20th. June 25th is St. Louis. The theme is Worried. The pitch deadline is May 28th. July 8th, San Francisco. The theme is Resonant. The pitch deadline is June 10th. But no matter where you are, and no matter when we're coming to town, you can always pitch us your stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. And you can always get one-on-one training, corporate training, our online classes, all of it at thestorystudio.org. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, at Risk Show. You can find me on Twitter, at Allison. You can always support us by going to the Support Us page at risk-show.com. The tables of contents of episodes are there, our shop for merchandise is there, and we always welcome people's comments about the stories and what risk means to you anywhere online, including on our site. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
3: to think that all of the people that love you and the one thing in this world that makes you happy could be the work of Satan.